I mean, I'm someone whose therapy notes were subpoenaed. I was like in a deposition and someone's like talking about my childhood trauma to me. Welcome back to M-Train, a podcast where we look at the ways Muslims are being surveilled and talk to people who are fighting to abolish it. In this episode, we talked to Noor Balut. We were interested in talking to Noor as a perspective of art, as a restorative action towards surveillance. So joining me today is Noor Balut. Tell me a little bit about your work and what you do, Noor. I'm an artist and a curator based between Chicago and Detroit right now. My work is really centered around investigating structures of power and dynamics and like specifically thinking about like gender dynamics and the ways through our complacency, we like sort of reinscribe these ways of like being in these like gender roles and gender dynamics and like sort of make them feel like they're natural, but when they're not. One of the things that I really liked from your artist statement was, I come from an intersection of communities looked at, but not seen. I thought that was such a fascinating way of framing your work. Can you talk about those communities you come from and what that statement means? So I moved to Michigan when I was nine, and I was born and raised in Beirut, Lebanon. And when I was in Lebanon, we were still under occupation from Israel. So I come from a community that's been bombed, a community that's been... Like, you never really know the people that are dying or being injured in a war. There's just the number. We're just looked at. We're not truly seen. We're not truly known. And then I grew up in Dearborn. You know, my family moved to Detroit. At some point, we moved to Dearborn. And that's sort of like where I came into the world and like began to develop the personality and the person that I am. In this community, that's one of the most surveilled communities in in the world. And growing up, it's a joke, right? Like we, we make a joke. Like if someone says something, we're like, oh, the FBI is listening. FBI didn't mean that. Like we're hyper surveilled. We're never really seen. We're just being watched all the time, which has deeply impacted my work. So tell us specifically about your current work that you are sharing with us that we're, we're talking about today, the one that's Habibi House and some of the also photography that accompanies your work. So Habibi House is a community space where I invite artists to come and make work and be engaged with the community that is there. The artist and the community and the neighborhood where the house is all get to decide what that space is going to be and what it's going to look like. So it's essentially like a space that's like for people, by people. And like what drove me to do it was like desiring a space outside of like institutional structures. I'm working on a project, two projects, one of them titled Muslims in North America. And then the other one is titled Transitions and Transformations. Both of them are archives. I'm really interested in building and creating archives. And this sort of ties into that whole growing up in a war. When you grow up in a war, you lose things. You don't build an archive. And if, when you do build an archive, one bomb can like erase all of that. Mm. And in my case, most of my childhood pictures are gone. And so like I have an obsession with like documentation. Simultaneously, I'm like really conscious of being watched because I also grew up in a hyper-surveilled community. And so... As I'm making these images about representation, I'm also thinking about how am I being seen? So my work begins to like take form in these abstract ways. So I take an image 
And those images, like images of my body as I like move through a medical transition and I make postcards and I send those postcards to my dear friends. And then I distribute the archives so that one bomb doesn't erase all of it, right? So a lot of your photography, as you've mentioned, and as I've seen also, grapples with transition, medical transition, and for different trans folks. And I'm curious, like, how you see that playing into the surveillance that you also mentioned, the other communities you belong to, Arab communities, imperialized communities. How do you see that documentation as a How do you see it in relationship to surveillance and that work? It's super present in the work. It's deeply in there. It's it's like what's driving the work forward, right? It's like, what's why am I making work about representation and then abstracting it? It is is the work. I think what's interesting about that to me, you know, this is a a miniseries about surveillance. We've spoken to journalists, academics. We've spoken to lawyers, mental health folks. This is sort of the art perspective, right? What I think is important about your work And what you've just said is that you are creating a limited viewpoint into it. Surveillance is all present. It's the idea that your life as a whole is subject to other people's viewpoint. You are narrowing the viewpoint. You're saying only certain parts of my life and our life and my community's life are able to be seen through a lens that I'm presenting. And I think that's a very powerful corrective. I wonder what that work feels like for you. Is it about finding other ways to engage in documentation that are productive, that are useful to the people that are being documented? It's kind of a documentation versus surveillance question, right? Yeah, definitely. When I think about photography, I think of Azule. Azule thinks that we should stop taking photos. As a photographer, I'm like, I really love taking photos. There's this like tension that's present there. Where I'm like, I want to document and I want to archive. Simultaneously, I'm so afraid of what your eyes are going to do to me and my work. So then I'm approaching this image. I'm like making images, but I'm also asking you to take a step back and reapproach it from a different angle. And it makes you question what you're looking at as, at the same time. To also bring into, into perspective that what we're looking at is also informed by our own prejudices and our own biases. So you can have like two people looking at the same photo and someone think it's like this BDSM scene and then this other person thinks it's this act of care at a hospital. People have digested this one piece in both of those ways. And I'm like, this is the point. The point is you as the viewer are making up the meaning as you are looking into someone's life, as you are looking into a photograph, you know? So like when these communities are being surveilled, who is watching is imposing their own ideas of that community onto everything, onto everything like that community is participating in. It's coming in with like this preconceived notions of like what they're looking at. And what my work is inviting us to do is like, yes, we're building an archive, but it's inviting us to like confront those biases and preconceived notions that we're coming in with. So the other thing about that that's so powerful is, I mean, law enforcement 
they probably have the most documentation of Arab, Muslim, South Asian, black, you know, immigrant communities possible. And despite that, despite the volume of information they have about our communities, they are still unable to interpret it accurately. They consistently come away with wrongheaded assumptions about how our communities operate. And what you're saying is that's because that work that you just mentioned about having to look at it from different angles, even if you had the whole picture, you're never going to actually get the whole picture because bias matters, perspective matters. And I think that's such an important thing that people need to understand. And I think the other question that I have for you is, do you have a certain audience in mind? Is there a certain audience that you want to to look at your work and, 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 and get those messages across? Or do you want it to be spread to a bigger community beyond your own? Both. The work, first and foremost, is for me. I am my, like, first audience member. There's a hole. There's, like, sort of this, like, huge gap for me as a human being. I don't have many images of myself as a child. My childhood has been erased. I have not had the things I've needed as a young adult. I have not had these spaces that I, like, am creating I'm also finding visual language to describe my masculinity, right? As a trans-masked brown Muslim person in a country that sees me as like a a threat, I'm just like, I want to see myself differently than you see me. And so that's sort of like where it begins. And then this work is being made for other trans-Muslim people. This work is being made for trans people. This work is being made for Arab communities. This work is being made for all Muslim communities. Then it's like the general public too. Like I'm I'm also interested in the work being an invitation, an invitation to look closely after we step back. And that's that's the invitation. Absolutely. You know, sexuality and gender policing are something that is present in all communities, certainly, but there's a certain manifestation in Muslim communities as well. How have you grappled with some of those challenges of, of existing as a trans-masked person in a Muslim community? Is there a corrective for them as well, for your own community? Yeah, definitely. I think it's been complicated and surprising in a lot of ways. It's incredibly powerful to have a sister that wears abaya that's correcting the woman at the Arab grocery store about my pronouns and is like, do not ask, like, that was an inappropriate question, you know? Or like my sister who's, is just like, I love you and care about you and you're my my sibling. And yeah, and it's that isn't always the case and it's not the case with every one of my family members, but it's not like a monolithic experience. Not everyone's going to react in the same way. I've been surprised by my community and how they've held me and how they've like created space for me to exist and also created space for me to make space. Um, That's a beautiful story about your sister. Could I actually ask you to tell it again from the beginning? Like put us in the scene that day and when what happened? Yeah, I mean, I was with my sister at Dearborn Fresh and we were grabbing lunch and we went up to the counter and my sister was like, this is Noor, my sibling. And the woman looked at me and was just like, are you, are you a boy or a girl? And my sister was just like immediately just angry and upset. And she was like, that is an inappropriate question. And no, like 
they're not going to answer that. That's just like an inappropriate question to ask. There's one other moment where I looked at my sister and realized what an amazing, incredible ally she is. It sounds like that's an evolution. Sounds like that wasn't always expected, that you are pleasantly surprised that you're there. It obviously involves a lot of work from both parties. Yeah, I mean, I I think she did a lot more work than I did, to be (laughs) honest. No, really, I, I didn't give my family enough grace and I didn't give them enough room or time to adjust. And I think what a lot of people don't realize is that when you're a queer or trans person, it takes you a long time to sort of like come into yourself and like accept all of who you are and what you are in this world and like how you're going to show up. And people have known you in this one particular way for as long as you've been alive, your family. And so you are asking them to change something really deep. You're asking them to go against what they believe and what they know, like their own belief systems, not just like accepting you as a person. It's you're challenging a belief system that they have. And so it isn't easy at first because I live in a country that tells me that my brown Muslim family isn't going to accept me. And you know what? Some of them haven't, but most of them have. And that is mind blowing for me. Have you had personal experience with surveillance? I mean, I'm someone whose therapy notes were subpoenaed. Oh, wow. Yeah. I was like in a deposition and someone's like talking about my childhood trauma to me. It's really deep. It's really fucked up. And like the law actually doesn't protect us in the ways that you think it should. It's so easy to to have like something as intimate as like therapy notes be, be like brought up. And so, like, I'm hyper aware of, like, being surveilled, even in therapy. I'm like, oh, I'm being watched. I'm, I'm performing. And I think the way we perform gender changes by who's watching. And I think that's interesting. And I became very privy to that as an immigrant. Because the way that we perform gender here is very different than the way that gender is performed where I come from. And I was like, oh, look, this isn't just the way things are. It's based on who's watching. Um, that's such a shocking and enraging story. I'm sorry that happened. Yeah. A lot of our other guests have talked about the ubiquity of surveillance technology and how our faces are being tracked by our cell phones, by going out in public. And you have created spaces that are not as exposed to the internet. Talk about the importance of building other kinds of spaces. I like to think about my practice as joy, as resistance. Arab, a real Arab blueprint, is one of those spaces where we're very conscious of surveillance in that dynamic as well. We talk about surveillance from like a government, but also like surveillance from our parents and our community. Like we're we're being watched. Like in Dearborn, I feel like I'm being watched by the government and like literally every auntie, everyone's auntie is watching me. And so when I'm like putting together these events in Detroit, I'm like throwing a rave essentially. <laughs> like, I'm like, let's let's listen to techno and Depke music at this like nightclub cafe art space and dance and like be like all of who we are in this space where we're not being watched by Khalto like next door. And like similar to like bottom line when I was you know, running bottom line, it was like a space where people could go and like feel like they could be themselves. The amount of like 
hijabi Arab women that have come out at an open mic at bottom line blows my mind because they felt like they were not being watched in that space, that they were not being surveilled. It's a lot of hard work, but it's a great argument for really working hard to build community spaces, to build that comfort. You know, it requires something that in an internet age, it's like, it's very rare to find those spaces. So I think you've built something special. So thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find your work to the extent that you're comfortable with them engaging with it? <laughs> Where can people be invited to your work? People can find my work at Noor Abelut on Instagram and at noorbalut.com on my website. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. M-Train is a six-part audio series hosted by me, Amadal Yakbar, and produced by Shereen Barghi. It is edited by Kareem Duadi. Our executive producers are Kai Youngblood and Charlie Hoxie. Follow Brick on Twitter and Instagram at BrickTV and follow me at RadBrownDads. This episode featured music composed by Kareem Duadi. It's also made with the support of the Doris Duke Foundation for Islamic Arts Building Bridges Program. For more information on this and all Brick TV content, visit brickartsmedia.org slash bricktv. I'm Amadal Yakbar. Thanks for listening.